you are more likely to die from taking Tylenol than Ivermectin, yet the FDA calls this a dangerous horse deworming medicine. What initially led this was an FDA Twitter account that used the term y'all to express denigration of Ivermectin as a horse drug. I have horses. The truth is that the dose that's used for horses by body weight is the same dose that's recommended for humans, but it's formulated and manufactured to a quality standard that's very different. Lots of medicines are used in both animals and humans, so it's not a sufficient argument for somebody to say, it's a horse dewormer. Yesterday, the CDC put out a national advisory on this, warning the whole country against taking this drug, ivermectin, formulated for horses and cows and sheep. With that um, memo fired to every doctor, then suddenly me and all my early treatment colleagues around the country, we were faced with problems like we'd never had before. I work as an emergency room doctor. And not only an emergency room doctor, I teach advanced trauma life support, a course to other doctors that want to work in the emergency room on how to stabilize patients. We were being told there's nothing you can do. Just wait for Fauci and the FDA to acknowledge a vaccine that they were going to create, and there's no treatment, they said. Why would you want to decrease access to quality, life-saving uh, measures for people who are fighting a worldwide pandemic? So it was the first time in history that we ever saw a doctor who could be prosecuted for using a generic safe and effective drug for the application that doctor thought was appropriate. My group of five, the core five of us ICU doctors, collectively were some of the most highly published doctors in the history of critical care medicine. Paul Marek is the most published practicing intensivist in the world. And Paul Merrick knew what worked in this pandemic from the very beginning and used the antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and anticoagulant medicines that he had available and taught with the other FLCCC doctors. They saved lives using these medicines and they shared their methods, their protocols with doctors around the world who also saved thousands of lives with what our FLCCC doctors had learned about treating all the stages of COVID. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ash, and I'm creative director of this alliance of doctors and their supporters. And one of the key things about this group is that they do what doctors the world over are supposed to do. They are always learning from their work with patients and students and with other doctors, and from reading and evaluating medical research that they really understand. And guess what? This is what's so interesting. Sometimes, sometimes what they learn branches into a direction that makes a huge difference in their own health. Tonight, we're going to talk about that. Tonight, we're going to learn what two of our expert critical care doctors and teachers, Dr. Paul Merrick and Joe Verone, learned that helped them manage, and in Paul's case, eradicate their own diabetes. This is about really taking control of your own 
health. So listen up. This is important. And the doctors are going to take your questions at the end of their discussion. Uh, but meanwhile, they, they want to talk about the diabetes tonight, about what they're going to discuss. And it's really important. But we do have a team of our top nurses on already working behind the scenes who are going to take your questions on all things COVID and anything else that you want to talk about. And you type into Q&A during the program. But diabetes, remember, was really important with COVID. And diabetes is, is a condition that affects a lot of really nasty outcomes in health. So it's something you do want to control and you do want to conquer if you know how to do it. Paul and Joe, tell us what you have done. Share it. We're eager to hear. Yeah, thanks, Betsy. So um, we're going to do something different tonight. Um, we're going to talk about my story. It's it's a journey that's that was precipitated by um, our interest in COVID. So basically, the title is Processed Food and Prescription Drugs Will Kill You. And that's the truth. They will kill you. So, you know, very important. I have no conflicts of interest, so um, which is very important. So, you know, our goal has always to be to tell the unadulterated absolute truth. And education is mainly what we have unlearned. And as you'll see, what Joe and I have discovered is that most of what we taught at medical school is completely and utterly false and wrong. And what we've had to do is unlearn what we've been taught. And I think that it's very important to recognize that sometimes what you taught is wrong and you have to unlearn what you have been taught. So just to start off, this is a graph looking at healthcare expenditure and life expectancy in the US as well as a whole host of other westernized nations. And you can see that the US spends more money per capita than any other country and has the lowest life expectancy, the lowest life expectancy. And that's because Americans are poisoned. Americans are poisoned with um, prescription drugs and they poisoned with what they eat. Uh, that's why we live, uh, have a shorter life expectancy and have worse healthcare outcomes than any other westernized nation. Now you will see Surprisingly, in the last year and a half, the life expectancy, which is truly astonishing in the US has fallen. And this is due to the third poison. First poison, prescription drugs. Second poison, processed food. Third poison, the COVID vaccine. So this is a really astonishing graph. What people may not realize is that the U.S. makes up 5% of the world's population, yet we consume 50% of the world's prescription drugs. That is truly astonishing. And basically, the pharmaceutical industry targets Americans because we can pay for their expensive drugs. So it's truly astonishing how much drugs we consume. And you can see this is the increase in expenditure in billions of dollars in the U.S. So it's increasing and it's increasing. And it, uh, it seems like it's on an exponential rise, never ending. So this is a problem because medical prescriptions treat symptoms. They do not treat disease. 
So what they want you to do is they want, they don't want to cure you. They want to keep you sick. They don't want you to die because you won't buy their medications. They want to keep you chronically ill, but they want you to buy their expensive medications. We do not cure the disease. So as we will see, SSRIs are ineffective for the treatment of depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorders, premenstrual anxiety, whatever else they want to tell you. Statins do not improve, in general, healthcare outcomes. Medications for type 2 diabetes do not cure diabetes. Medication for hypertension does not cure hypertension. PPIs do not cure reflux esophagitis. All drugs have significant side effects. And we know that we are a society that is polypharmacy. Many elderly patients take in excess of 12 prescription medications. So this was a study, interesting enough, which came out last week. This was looking at adverse drug reactions and polypharmacy. This was done in the UK. And just remember, the UK consumes significantly less medications than we do. And what they found was almost 20% of hospital admissions were due to adverse drug reactions. And almost all, 90% of the um, admissions were directly as a result of these adverse drug reactions. So this gives you an idea of the profound polypharmacy. And this is in the UK, where they use much less prescription drugs than we do. So, you know, doctors tend to believe what's published in the literature. So this is the title, Selective Publication of Antidepressant Trials and Its Influence on Apparent Efficacy. So what happens is what the pharmaceutical companies do, if they have a negative study, it never gets published. So the data is presented to the FDA. So if you look at the FDA data, about half the studies were negative. But these, these studies are never published. So that doctors only have access to positive studies and meta-analysis of positive studies. So they're under the impression that these SSRIs are effective. But that, again, is, is a lie because the big pharma manipulates the results of these studies. And this is an example. This was dated January 1985, fluoxetine, which is Prozac. The uh, Medicines Council in Germany refused in 1985 to register this drug for two reasons. Its efficacy was, uh, was questioned and because of the increased suicidal risk. And we know both of these are true, yet um, the FDA has and has continued to register these drugs. We then come to this myth, the hoax, the cholesterol hoax. This is probably one of the biggest hoaxes perpetrated by Big Pharma and uh, the medical community. Um, because of this hoax, people are obsessed about eating saturated fat and their cholesterol levels and taking a statin. What the truth of the matter is, unless you have familial hypercholesterolemia and very high cholesterol levels, the relationship between cholesterol and coronary disease and atherosclerosis is a myth and doesn't exist. 
As you'll see, vascular disease and coronary disease is due to insulin resistance, is the major contributor and not cholesterol. And lowering your cholesterol does not prevent you getting heart disease. This is one of the biggest myths and uh, frauds perpetrated in modern medicine. And this is a study which proves this. So this was a meta-analysis of published studies. Okay, so these are published studies, which obviously didn't include the studies that Big Pharma tried to hide. And you read the conclusion, and this is Archives of Internal Medicine, this literature-based analysis did not find evidence for the benefit of statin therapy on all-cause mortality in a high-risk primary prevention setup. So the goal is to prevent all-cause mortality. Who cares what happens to your HDL or LDL? What's really important is if you live or die. And this study of biased, randomized study shows that statins do not have any impact for primary prevention. Now, you may not be able to read this list, but this is a list of studies of cholesterol-lowering randomized control trials that reported no mortality benefit. Just to say that again, so these are the trials that get hidden. These are the trials that big pharma don't want you to see. All of these studies were studies to reduce cholesterol and showed no effect on all-cause mortality. As I said, this cholesterol hoax is one of the biggest hoax perpetrated in modern medicine. And so this is, this is a very important book written by Marcia Engel. She was the previous editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and she left because of her complete disgust with the system. And this is a really good book. This was written in 2004, but obviously things have not got better since then. They've got a lot worse. It is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. And I mean, this is a truly remarkable statement from the editor of the most prestigious medical journal in the world. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I read slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And, you know, my hat off to Marcia Engel, who was brave enough to speak the truth and tell the truth. So we're going to move, change gears now from the, um, the fraud perpetrated by Big Pharma and the, 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 the uh, pushing and marketing and selling um, pharmaceutical agents which don't work. We're now going to talk about obesity and type 2 diabetes. So the, most of this talk is type 2 diabetes, and which differs from type 1, as we'll see. So you can see in um, purple or red or whatever, this is the number of diabetic people in the world, and you can see how it's increasing at an alarming rate. 400 million diabetics in, in, in another 20 years, this is going to reach 700 million people. You can see how the parallels the uh, number of obese and overweight people in billions. 2.4 billion people are expected to be overweight. And you can see the cost to the healthcare system. 
And as we saw, you know, pharma lied about cholesterol, pharma lied about um, uh, statins, pharma lied about SSRIs. They have lied about diabetes, type 2 diabetes. So the common teaching is type 2 diabetes is a chronic progressive disease that can't be cured. And as I'll show you, this is false and just fits in with their narrative because they don't want you to be cured. They want you to take medication forever. And according to this lie, the primary treatment is to lower glucose with medication. And we'll see both of these two are lies. So we now come to what's the most disturbing um, revelation or what, what most people will, will find truly astonishing. So Americans spend about 10% of their disposable income on fast food. Processed foods, and we're going to talk about processed foods, make up 70% of the U.S. diet, 70%. On average, an American consumes 130 pounds of sugar a year, and more than one in three adults are obese. And we'll see how this constellation of factors result in human poisoning. And what has become truly astonishing is if you do experiments in animals, that animals become more addicted to sugar than to cocaine. Sugar and carbohydrates are more addictive to human beings and to animals than cocaine. And you'll see how it creates this reward system that um, the more sugar you take, the more insulin resistant you become. With insulin resistance, you get high levels of insulin, which then stimulate your appetite and block the effects of um, the anti-appetite suppressants. So it becomes a, a forward vicious cycle. The more, the more, uh, sugar addicted you become, the more insulin resistant you become, the more you crave sugar. And what happens is that insulin negates the effect of leptin on the brain. So if you look at the top American foods, what do Americans eat? This is what they eat. Hamburgers, hot dogs, French fries, Oreo cookies, pizza, soft drinks, sodas, chicken tenders, ice cream, donuts, and potato chips. This is what makes up the American diet and is completely toxic. This is toxic. Interesting, pizza is the number one food in the world. And this concoction consists of 35% polyunsaturated fat and 50% of carbohydrates. And this is all refined carbohydrates together which they've added processed uh, omega-6 fatty acids. So the major toxins that humans are, well, Americans are exposed to is processed food, sugar, and high fructose corn syrup. And the morbidity and deaths from sugar far exceed those ever from cigarettes. And this is a very good book by Dr. Lustig, which goes into detail on um, the pathogenicity and toxicity of sugar and fructose corn syrup. So what happens to the body is the body looks at fructose and glucose differently. And it basically, in the liver, it converts fructose to fat. It goes directly into fat and causes fatty liver. It's not metabolized via the same pathway as glucose. And as we'll see, fatty liver is really what is the 
underlying cause of insulin resistance, which is caused by a diet high in fructose, which causes fatty liver. So basically what we're talking about is distinguishing real foods from processed food. And it's pretty obvious. If it looks like food, it's probably food. If it doesn't look like food, if it comes in a box or has a label, this is processed. It's processed carbohydrates. It's for processed vegetable oils. It's processed omega-6 fatty acids. Uh, this is a toxic uh, combination. So what is the toxicity of processed food? Well, it's high in fructose. Fructose is converted into fat in the liver. Fat causes fatty liver, which causes insulin resistance. The fructose damages the mitochondrion. The fructose is pro-inflammatory. So you can see that the damage to, to the liver and the consequences of a diet high in fructose and sugar. And then what we add to that is these processed omega-6 fatty acids or seed oils. So when you go to a restaurant or a fast food restaurant or most processed foods have these processed synthetic omega-6 fatty acids, these seed oils, which again are pro-inflammatory and cause oxidant injury. And this diet is, is lacks omega-3 fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory, and there's a lack of fiber. So just, just to understand what we're talking about, because the bottom line is this is all about insulin resistant. So people are become resistant to the effect of insulin. Insulin is not acting normally. The, the reason for this is that we get non-alcoholic non fatty liver. So this is the accumulation of fat in the liver which causes non-alcoholic fatty liver, causes the liver to become resistant to insulin. So, the, the, uh, so, so insulin resistance is the cause of prediabetes and diabetes too. So this is type two diabetes. Insulin resistance causes accelerated vascular disease. Ex insulin resistance causes cancer. Insulin resistance causes dementia. Insulin resistance causes polycystic ovarian syndrome. All of these diseases are because insulin cannot work effectively. Now, this is what happens in an insulin sensitive and resistant person at the onset. So if you look at the blood glucose, it looks normal. But in order to get the glucose into the cell, the body has to compensate by very high insulin levels because the body has become in insulin resistant and this becomes a self-perpetuating cycle the more insulin you have the more insulin resistant you become so that's why it's so important to break the cycle so there are really two simple concepts one protect the liver you want to do what you can to prevent fatty liver and fatty liver is really what underlies insulin resistance and probably 50 percent of americans are insulin resistant, and those that have diabetes or type 2 are certainly have um, a fatty liver. And you want to feed the gut. You want to feed the gut with the fiber, both soluble and non-soluble fiber. So just to show you about the myth, there is this myth which goes together with the saturated, together with the cholesterol myth. We told that 
we need to reduce our intake of saturated fatty acids. This is what the doctors tell us. This is what dietitians tell us. This is what the dietary guidelines tell us. So if you actually look at, this is looking at total mortality. If it's below this line, it means it's going down. If it's going up, it means that it's increasing risk of death. So you can see as your energy from fat increases, your mortality goes down. Okay, so this was published in The Lancet, and The Lancet don't like publishing data which goes against the narrative. And this just shows you how important the study is. So as your fat intake goes up, your risk of dying goes down. It's a very important concept because we're told to have a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. And if you look at saturated fats, which is the fats in animal uh, products, you can see it goes down. Monounsaturated fats, it goes down. So monounsaturated fats in olive oil, coconut oil, avocados, et cetera. Polyunsaturated is a little bit complicated because they didn't break it into omega-3 and 6s, but generally goes down. But if you have a look at carbohydrates, okay, just remember that most of the American diet is in carbohydrates. So as you increase your intake of carbohydrate, your risk of dying goes up. So the bottom line is, this is from published data from the Pure Study, 18-country uh, prospective study. Your intake of fat goes up, your mortality goes down. Your intake of carbohydrate goes up, your mortality goes up. So this low-fat diet is a complete and utter fraud. So, you know, most people, and if you go to the store, everything is low-fat. So if it's low-fat, it has to be high in carbohydrate, because that's the only other part of the equation. If it's low in fat, it's high in carbohydrate. And um, the dietary guidelines and physicians and dietitians have become obsessed with uh, recommending a low-fat diet. And as you can see, this is a complete and utter fraud, because it then results in a high intake of carbohydrates. And so this is the USDA food pyramid. You can see what's at the bottom. Processed foods, breads, pasta, cereals. They want you to take lots of carbohydrate as part of the food pyramid. So this is one of, of a number of really important studies. So what dietitians will tell you is that you have to, you have to remove saturated fats from your diet. And how do you do this using linoic acid for secondary prevention? So you can see what they did in these studies is they substituted, they substituted saturated fat in animal products with this vegetable-derived um, linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid. And the result, as you can see, was negative. It actually increased the risk of people dying. So by changing from a saturated fat to a vegetable unsaturated fat people, it increased the risk of dying. So what did the people do? They try to hide the study. So this was data that was recovered because they try to hide it from the Sydney Diet Heart Study. So what did they do? What was the purpose to evaluate the effectiveness of replacing dietary saturated fat? We hear this all the time. Dietary saturated fat is bad. Red meat is bad. Saturated fat is bad with omega-6 linoleic acid for secondary prevention of heart disease. That's what the objective was. 
That's what the current guidelines still maintain. That's what the dietitians tell you. What did they find? The intervention group had a higher rate of death than the control group, 17% versus 11%. Cardiovascular disease, 17% versus 11%. So by substituting saturated animal fat with this vegetable oil, it increased the risk of dying. And you know what? There are two other equally uh, convincing studies, the Women's Health Initiative study and the Minnesota Coronary Artery study, again, showing the same thing, again, perpetuating this myth about saturated fats. And like big pharma, big food are interested in selling their products. They're not interested in the truth. And the fraud and corruption perpetrated by big food is absolutely no different than big pharma and prescription drugs and processed foods will kill you. So this is an important quote by the director of the Joslin Diabetes Center. So he runs, this is the director of the Joslin Diabetes Center. It is clear we made a major mistake in recommending the increase in carbohydrate load of greater than 40% of total caloric intake. This era should come to an end if we seriously want to reduce obesity and diabetic epidemic. This is from the director of the Diabetes Center. Unfortunately, many physicians and dietitians across the nation are still recommending high carbohydrate intake for patients with diabetes, a recommendation that will harm patients. So this is from the National Academy of Medicine. The lower limit of dietary carbohydrate compatible with life is zero, provided adequate amounts of protein and fat are consumed. So Americans consume enormous amounts of carbohydrate, which as we can see is completely and totally toxic. This is just one of many, many studies comparing a low carbohydrate to a low fat diet. Conclusion, the low carbohydrate diet. So what we're talking about is low carbohydrate, high fat diet. Saturated fats are fine. Low the low carbohydrate diet was more effective for weight loss and cardiovascular risk factor reduction than the low fat diet. Restricting carbohydrate may be an option for persons seeking to lose weight and reduce cardiovascular risk factors. So, you know, I recommended the metabolomic book. This, this is a book. These are two books by Tim Noakes. He's probably the world expert. He's probably the world expert on low carbohydrate, high fat diet, because he was persecuted and placed on trial for advocating such a diet. And obviously he was profoundly vindicated. Uh, he, his books are really outstanding and give you profound insight into uh, the benefits of a low carbohydrate, high fat diet. So then the next argument is plant-based versus a carnivorous diet. And like most things in life, the truth is somewhere in the middle because you can find data to support a plant-based diet or you can find data to uh, support a purely carnivorous diet. So according to Oscar Wilde, everything in moderation, including moderation, the only exception to that moderation would be sugar and processed carbohydrates. There's no, no, no place for processed sugar or, or 
processed foods in moderation. However, human evolution provides the best epidemiological studies on nutrition. As we know, humans evolved to be hunters and gatherers in which they ate intermittently and they ate a meat-based diet with fruits and vegetables. That's what we evolved to. However, we've now in the last few decades become uh, consumers of processed foods. And you can see how the uh, uh, human evolution has again changed. So what's really interesting uh, in this uh, debate of uh, people who are plant-based is that animals that eat a plant-based diet are either foregut or hindgut fermenters. So in order to break down the cellulose and to break down the complex starches in, in, in plant-based, you either need to be a foregut fermenter, so you have four stomachs, you have a multi-compartment stomach. And what happens is you have symbiotic bacteria which ferment the um, plant-based material into short-chain fatty acids. And then you have hindgut fermenters. So these are animals, again, who ferment plant-based material in their hindgut. They have a simple stomach, but a very large and complex large intestine. Humans are neither, are neither ruminants nor hindgut fermenters. They have a simple monogastric stomach, which means that they designed not to, on a pure plant-based diet. They cannot digest adequately um, the, the plant-based material. And you see this really nicely by comparing humans to other primates that are plant-based. So if you look at the small intestine of these other animals, they have a short, small intestine because most of the fermentation is, is in, the, um, in the, the cecum, in the, the hindgut fermenters. And humans have a large, a long small intestine because that's where they absorb nutrients. Conversely, if you look at the colon, these animals have very large colons because they are hindgut fermenters. This is where they ferment all this plant-based material in with their anaerobic bacteria making short-chain fatty acids, which are absorbed. As you see, humans have short, very short uh, colons. So this data indicates that humans are actually more designed to, uh, to digest a mixed diet with meat rather than a pure plant-based diet. So what are the 10 worst things to eat? If you wanted to list them, donuts, bagels, bread, pretzels, tortillas, cookies, muffins, baked products, chips, french fries, cereals, rice and pasta, potatoes, canned fruit, fruit juices, low-fat yogurt, which is obviously sweetened bananas. So you can see this is what most Americans eat every day. This is high in processed carbohydrates. It's going to cause insulin resistance. It's going to cause a fatty liver. Then, as I said, what you want to avoid is seed oils high in linoleic acid. So linoleic acid is an omega-6 polyunsaturated fat, which, as we saw from the previous studies, if you change saturated fat to these uh, omega-6 fat, fatty acids, increases your risk of heart disease and overall mortality. So these are the seed oils you want to avoid. So you can use non seed oils or, or, or oils that have 
alpha-linoleic acid, which is an omega-3. So this is olive oil, which is, an, which is a monounsaturated fatty acid, avocado oil, coconut oil, flaxseed oil, which is alpha-linoleic acid, ALA, which is omega-3, canola oil, which is MUFA and ALA, and butter. So what are the test be 10 best things to eat? Fish, vegetables, chicken breast, nuts, peanut butter, including chia seeds, Greek yogurt with pre and probiotics, but not sweetened, meat, grass-fed, no hormones, avoid processed meats, blueberries are the highest uh, concentration of uh, phytochemicals and the lowest concentration of fructose, but you've got to be careful with the volume. The same with grapefruit. You don't want to, the, these fruits have a lot of fructose, so you want to limit your fructose intake. Coffee is fine with, with, with heavy cream and coconut oil. Stevia is fine. It's not a, it, it does, it has positive effects on uh, uh, insulin metabolism. So chia seeds are actually very healthy products and you should consider buying chia seeds and adding these to many of your meals. It's high in protein. You can see it has high in carbs, but 83% is fiber. So it consists of 34 grams of fiber. It's what's really astonishing. It's both soluble and insoluble. So this is very important for your gut flora. And then when you look at the fat, it has a high concentration of fat but most of this is omega-3, alpha-linoleic acid. So it has healthy fats and has lots of fiber and it has protein. So for those of you who are insistent on having bread or, or bread-like products or toast, you can actually buy a keto bread, which as you can see is pretty low in carbohydrate and high in fiber. So if you do have a, a, a carb, um, fixation, this, this can help you uh, overcome this. So basically we're saying food is medicine. You must reclaim your health with whole food. And what I do recommend in addition to eating whole food is, is intermittent fasting because intermittent fasting acts synergistically with a low fat, with a low carbohydrate diet. So what does, what does intermittent fasting do? It activates autophagy. It balances insulin and glucose level. It increases growth hormone, very important. Auto intermittent fasting increases human growth hormone, so it actually increases muscle mass, it reduces inflammation, reduces chronic diseases, anti-aging effects. So it appears that, or, or the data shows that intermittent fasting or time-based food restriction together with a low carbohydrate diet are synergistic in achieving these effects uh, of autophagy and improving insulin resistance. So finally, that this kind of led to my story. So I was a diabetic for over 25 years. I thought I was destined to be a diabetic, develop complications from diabetes, that I would be um, on anti-diabetic medication forever. These were the medicines that I were on by my very smart uh, internist. You can see including a statin and an SSRI. So after four weeks, after four weeks of intermittent fasting and eating real food, I managed to get myself off all of these medications and am metabolically more healthier now than I've ever been. 
I do take omega-3, resveratrol, spermidine, melatonin, and some vitamins D. So within four weeks of doing this, which I found truly astonishing because people will tell you type 2 diabetes is a progressive, incurable disease. So what did I do? I ate. So I, I became pretty good at intermittent fasting and the different ways of doing it. And I recommend that you uh, read Jason Fung's book. It's an excellent book on how to do it because it takes some training and some discipline. But what I did was I ate food which looked like food. You can see this looks like food. These are nuts. These are berries. This is, this is salmon here. These are beans. And I do use at times, this is a... a um, Greek yogurt, but as you can see, it has pre and probiotics with no added sugar. Really important because most of these products have added sugar. They're low-fat added sugar, which is exactly the opposite of what you want to. So what I did was I got a continuous glucose monitor, and you can see my profile from running a blood glucose, as I'll show you, close to 200. It runs less than 100. I have this little spike in the morning, which is due to your counter-regulatory hormone. So what happens in the morning, growth hormone, glucagon, catecholamines, cortisol go up. So it tends to cause your, your glucose to go up. And then this is when I eat in the afternoon. You can see three o'clock and I have this little spike, but you can see the glucose doesn't go very high. So this is what happened. This is my weight. You can see what's happened in 12 weeks I've lost 35 pounds of weight. My fasting blood glucose has fallen from like 170 to now less than 100. And my hemoglobin A1C, which is the best marker of diabetes, has gone from 8 to 5.2. So I'm, by definition, no longer a diabetic of all medications. So I, what we did today was a little bit different. Um, I think hopefully it will empower people to change what they do because you can change what you do. It takes time. It takes um, some perseverance, but if you want to, you can take control and empower your life. And with that, I thank you. And we're going to take some questions. Oh, yes, Paul, this is amazing. Um, I'm not surprised though, because years ago when I was a reporter and I was covering diets, you know, particularly always exposing the scam diet at the moment. And I would go to all the officials who were, everything was low fat, low fat, low fat, low fat for 30 years. And of course I've always been, I was always a chubby person and I was always on low fat, low fat. And I was watching my weight go up and I was watching myself become pre-diabetic. And this was scary because my father died at age 57 of complications of diabetes. He had the kidney issues. And so I took this seriously. And it wasn't until I read a story, it has it all been a big fat lie in the New York Times Magazine that was done in 2002 in the summer. And they said the researchers all of a sudden were realizing they'd made a big mistake that Fat was not the culprit. Fat was the good thing. And all of a sudden it made Robert Atkins look respectable who had been mm -hmm. onto this diet. And I wrote him and I said, I made a mistake. All these years I never interviewed you. Why? Because the doctors used to badmouth him. Oh, you know, like, oh, well, you know, he's just a doctor who's out to make money off his diet. And he said, Betsy, 
come in and I said, I'd like to have be tested and, and, and see what you have to say. And I went in for the tests and went on his diet and I too got better. And one of the things he told me was, he says, I didn't make up that diet. I got it out of an old medical book, an ancient medical book when I was a student, when I was a fat medical student, where you're doing all those tests and everything. And, and you know, you're eating terribly while you're doing that, right? You guys know this. And he said, I got better with the diet. And I just decided to share it with the world. But of course, he called it the Atkins diet and made money. And that's why the other doctors hated him. But it was an interesting thing that it took 30 years before the establishment sort of came around, sort of came around to the low fat business. And I'm fat because you're into this much bigger, Paul, and I want to read these other books. Uh, but boy, do we have questions from other people here who have, you know, everybody's concerned about this because it's, it's life. It's trying, yeah. to eat, trying to stay healthy. And yeah. So as Joseph will tell us, you know, it's been a big fat lie, this low fat, um, high carbohydrate diet is, it, it, it is, it is opposite of what you want. And you go to the store, everything is low fat. In fact, that's the opposite of what you want. You want high fat. Fat is good. And so they have basically been perpetrating one of the biggest nutritional frauds or medical frauds that 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 um, that we've witnessed. What do you think, doctor? This um, is my brother here, Dr. Veron. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. For those of you who, who don't know it, uh, I've known Paul since 1995, when we actually got to meet each other in London uh, on a very unique set of circumstances. But since then, I mean, I have been you know, on this Atkins-like diet uh, on and off uh, since then. And I can tell you, there is nothing more scary than getting a phone call from your best friend, Paul Maddick, that says, hey, Joe, I'm in the hospital because my sugar was 600 and they're giving me insulin. I mean, you guys have no idea of, of I'm thinking about all the bad things that are going to happen to him. And, you know, we've always been thinking outside the box, as, as you guys know. But it's not being outside the box, actually. The data is here. Uh, Paul and I, we were talking about it, all these misconceptions. I mean, for example, for those of you who are runners and, you know, you're going to run your marathon, when you hear uh, that you are carbo-loading because you want to be uh, extra strong, when indeed, you know, you don't need carbs. End of story. Your brain doesn't need carbs. And indeed, my brain works much better with, <clears throat> with other sources of energy than with carbohydrates. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is legit. I have one instance where I have elevated uh, A1C and elevated uh, 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 blood glucose. And trust me, I mean, my A1C went down from 8.4 to 5.4 in a period of one month and a half. Simple as that. Just by doing the simple things that Paul has been uh, mentioning. But one problem that we have is trying to convince people to do this. In the late 1990s, we did study in which we actually got the petroleum workers of Mexico and we divided them into uh, low carb and you know, low fat diets. And we found out that everybody on the low carb, they lost weight, it was amazing, their cholesterol levels were down, everything was perfect. The problem was how did you convince a Mexican worker not to eat tortillas? That yes. was the biggest problem. And to talk about tortillas, I mean, Paul can tell you, he recently was out lecturing around and he had one day where he couldn't find the food that he needed. 
he has one single enchilada or something. And then he sends me his uh, a picture of his glucose three hours later. I mean, it's it's simple as that. Well, let's get to some questions because boy, are people interested in this. Mm -hmm. um, Alison Kennedy wants to know, did the COVID pandemic open your minds up to these data points about big pharma and the profit over people mentality they base their business practices on? Or did you see some of these harmful insights in the drug epidemic prior to the pandemic? What was the evolution of awakening like for you as medical doctors? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I'll give you my and peers perspective and what Joseph can answer. So it's been there all the time. This corruption and this perversion has been there for maybe 20, 30, 40 years. We just didn't know how extensive it was and how deep it was. But there's no question of doubt. There's no question of doubt that COVID has shown has shone a bright light on the corruption of the medical system. So, and I mean, personally, you know, I mean, I, I was not aware of how deep and corrupt the system was. And I think our exploration in COVID has made that blatantly clear. But it's been there all the time. I think that it's so obvious now. Uh, it's just so obvious and so blatant for everyone to see. Uh, what for, us, became, for us, it became extremely important when, you know, when we were trying to publish some of the research related to COVID. And we started to see that some of the journals said, no, 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 no way. Why? Because it doesn't follow the, the narrative. You know, it doesn't follow what everybody else is saying. The sales pitch. So, so, so indeed, just like Paul says, it's been going on for as long as we have been in medicine. However, without question about it, COVID has really exposed where we are. Rita Sober asks, my doctor says I need a cholesterol medication due to my diabetes, which is well controlled. <laughs> I eat keto. Now I take metformin only. My HDL and LDL are perfect. I resisted for a while and I want to come off. I did a coronary CT and I have some calcification. Is there any efficacy to continue to take it? Yeah. So, you know what? We, we, we don't want to get into the position where we're giving medical advice. But I think the data clearly shows that um, eat that eating saturated fats and causing your cholesterol to go up doesn't cause coronary artery disease. In fact, it's the opposite. There's very little data that statins have any clinical benefit as the data shows. The only benefit of a statin is in secondary prevention in someone who's already had a heart attack who has really high cholesterol levels. So what I did is I was on a statin. I, I weaned myself off the statin while I was ta taking care of my diet. The most important way to prevent heart disease and atheroma is insulin, pre preventing insulin resistance. It's the high insulin levels that causes the vascular disease, not the cholesterol. So this is part of this fraud which has been perpetrated because I showed you data of, of many, many studies that have shown decreasing the cholesterol level does not improve or cause mortality. So the goal should be to, to prevent death and prevent coronary disease and vascular disease. And statins simply as a general class of drugs do not do this. This is part of the overall fraud which has been perpetrated. Let me, so, 
Let me give you a question because following up on exactly what you're saying, Jane says, can statins be effective for the prevention of a stroke if there is a history of at least one TIA? What about blood thinners with a normal platelet count? Yeah, so those are very specific indications that obviously they should discuss it with their, you know, their primary care doctor. You know, what we're saying is that statins are overused. There's very little data that they have benefit. It's much more important to get your insulin resistance down because it's the insulin resistance which drives the vascular disease, which drives the dementia, which drives the cancer. So that's the most important is to get your insulin resistance down. And you do that by cutting down on carbs and by intermittent fasting. That will have a much more profound effect on your risk of vascular disease than any other pharmacological intervention. Um, Joseph, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, Mick, one other thing, Paul, that you mentioned that you and me have been doing consistently is exercise. There is no question that, you know, consistent exercise, and that means at least three times a week, 35 to 40 minutes of cardio, will increase your HDL levels, will actually, there is even regression of that atherosclerotic uh, plaque, but you have to be consistent. And that's the problem that, that we see. Even in my own case, years ago, I mean, I was up and down on this yo-yo diet uh, because one, the carbohydrate addiction, which, you know, some of us don't know how to eat one donut. We eat the whole 12 uh, pack of the, of the donuts. And second was, you know, we were not too consistent with the exercise part. So I, I think that that's extremely important. Yeah, and you know, even just going on a walk is 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 you know, physical exercise, walking outdoors in the sun is is both therapeutically very important for both the body and the mind. Right. Now here's one. Doctor Laura asks: Does ivermectin clear the fatty liver? Research has shown it does, but have you found it to be true? Plus, she asks, what is the effect of apple cider vinegar on insulin resistance? Yeah, so we, she asked an interesting question. So we know that ivermectin stimulates autophagy. And one of the effects of autophagy is to uh, basically break down hepatic liver. And in fact, ivermectin is one of the drugs that have been that is recommended for, for fatty liver. So the answer is yes. But I, would, I wouldn't take ivermectin for that reason. I would rather cut down on carbs, cut down on processed food, eat intermittently. You know, this idea of eating all the day is, is so unphysiologic. And people think it's difficult that you'll be overly hungry. But actually, the opposite happens. Because once your insulin resistance goes away, your addiction to carbs go away. It's not that difficult at all. Good to hear. Now, Kate uh, Opalnik says, I have several patients who have changed their diet to whole foods for over a year. About 95% cannot still, can, still can't get their A1C down. I am assuming the fatty liver is present. Does the fatty liver affect the slow A1C change? And how long does it take to heal the fatty liver? And thank you for leading us medical professionals, Dr. Merrick, with your example of living integrity in your medical practice. Yeah. So I'll answer that first and Joseph can pipe in, you know, so I was stunned by my case because, 
you know, within four to six weeks, I was able, and I, I had pretty bad hypoglycemia. I was able to get up all my meds. So, um, but I think it's a, it's a combination of low fat diet as well as intermittent fasting. I think the two act synergistically together. So it's the, you know, ketosis from, from the low fat diet, sorry, for the low carb diet and the ketosis from intermittent fasting act synergistically on your brain and your liver and uh, improve insulin resistance. So, you know, these people may have changed their diet, but they may not do intermittent fasting. And, you know, you can eat, you know, you can do time-based feeding so that I think the worst thing is, is this continuous snacking. So even if you eat for four to six hours and then the rest of the time you fast, that seems to have a additive or synergistic effect together with the, um, uh, low carb diet. So the two work well together and it may take time, but I think it is reversible. Yeah. And, you know, with response to that particular question, uh, I have seen that in my, in my practice, but when you really do a true history on the patients, they are consuming things that they don't even know that they have carbs. They will tell you, Oh, I just had one banana or, Oh, I have two tomatoes, big tomatoes, you know, which yeah. have a bunch of, Sure. So you just have to 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 re-educate your your patients and try to make sure that they understand. There are several books that you guys already mentioned. The first one that I remember I read was a book by a couple, uh, husband and wife, Doctor Eats and Doctor Eats, which was called Protein Power. And you know it went over the entire uh, entire things uh, as to how to do the same approach that Paul is having. But unfortunately, many of our patients don't don't care about it. I mean, they are more interested about this addiction. And yes, those pizzas that you that Paul was talking about, I mean, yes, we, we start drooling and yes, they have the effect of any drug that you can imagine. So I think what Joseph says is really true. Most people don't really appreciate what they're eating and the carbohydrate content. So fruit juices are out. If you're going to eat fruit, fruit is very high in fructose and is going to cause, you know, high fructose level is going to cause a fatty liver so that you really need to restrict the intake of um, of fruit and fruit juices and people may be not aware of the carbohydrate content of what what they eating so it's a way you have to re-educate yourself which is not difficult you know uh, it's very it's simple to find this data and for me, what I found so useful was the continuous glucose monitor because that gave me instant feedback you know, on myself. I could see the effect of what I ate on my blood glucose. As Joseph said, I, you know, we went out, I was stuck in what I could eat. Um, I was taken to a Mexican restaurant. I had some enchiladas and whatever. It did a terrible thing to my blood glucose. And obviously, because, you know, it's high in carbohydrates. So, you know, I think if, if you're cognizant of what you're eating, it, it, it makes it a lot easier. So and eggs think, are fine. Cheese is fine. You know, they, they're fine. I think but, one has to be careful of, you know, processed foods. Uh, lots of fruit juices are out. Now, if you don't believe it, you don't need to have diabetes to use a continuous glucose monitor. Indeed, I'm using that now more on my patients. You know, I just tell them that sticking their little fingers is kind of a 1980s technology. And uh, most of my patients, 
once they know what, what they eat by just looking at what their sugar does, that immediate gratification, like Paul would say, or that immediate uh, feeding, uh, retrofeeding retro that will tell you exactly what they can and they cannot eat. So I'm a very strong believer in the use of continuous glucose monitoring. Yeah, so in response to that physician's question, you know, what I would say is if the patients actually, so these continuous glucose monitors are very easy to use. They're covered by medical by medical insurance. They've, they, they're not expensive and very easy to use. And it gives you almost instant feedback so that you can tell, you know, at your own level what... What I'm eating, what does it do to my blood glucose? And it's truly astonishing how, you know, how quickly you can see changes and you can have a big meal, which is low in carbs and your, your glucose stays flat. So it's a very good feedback system to control. Just give you an idea what you can and can't eat. Okay. I We're at the top of the hour. We're going to have to quit. But there's one question that Diane has asked, and I really want to know the answer to this one too. Diane on Facebook said, does taking your FLCCC meds in the protocols for COVID stop autophagy like ivermectin, vitamin C and D, quercetin, and et cetera? And I'm always interested. So, okay, I think if I don't eat, I'm okay, but I still need to take my morning pill and I have to take a couple yeah. of things in the morning. Does that blow it up? And No. So, I mean, no. So, so you know, the... Um, uh, ivermectin stimulates autophagy, spermidine stimulates autophagy, the resveratrol stimulates autophagy. So these are not these are not high in carbohydrates and, and the volume is really small. So no, none of these vitamins or supplements should in, in any way interfere. And in fact, they'll augment, uh, you know, so, so the uh, resveratrol and spermidine were specifically added because it augments the uh, autophagy, which is part of the process of improving insulin resistance. Okay, I'm going to get, squeeze one more in here because I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be and has something to do with what you just said before. This is from Anita on Twitter. She says, I'm 61 years old, dealing with two and, for two and a half weeks with type 2 diabetes. I have drastically modified my diet. I thought I'd be feeling better by now, but I feel hungry all the time with headaches and brain fog. What am I doing wrong? Yeah, so you know what? I would say persist. You know what? It takes time. It takes perseverance. Don't give up. So, um, you know, I'm sure just give it some time. It, it, it's a matter of being motivated because, you know, the, the consequences of diabetes, as we all know, are awful. You know, the heart disease, the amputations, the blindness. You just don't want that to happen. So I think, you know, do it slowly, do it methodically. It takes time. You know, I was fortunate. I didn't, I was completely and utterly stunned at how quickly mine reversed. But some patients take, take a little longer. So don't give up. I think the bottom line is eat real food. You know, it's really simple. Eat real food and eat once or twice a day. It's not a difficult concept. And do it slowly and do some exercise and do some relaxing therapy. If you want to do some yoga with Christina, that's always a good thing. Yoga is a good thing. So, you know, it's the mind and the body working together. Because I can tell you that stress, 
Stress on its own does a terrible thing because stress increases your catecholamines, increases cortisol, will shoot, will cause your um, glucose to spike. So you want to take it easy. You want to chill out. You want to do some yoga. You want to eat whole food. You want to, You don't want to eat all the time. And you want to be merry. Joe, <laughs> yeah. you want to add something to that? And then I have to, we have to end this. <laughs> yeah, and Paul, I mean, let's just be clear. I mean, I, you know, I do this with my patients, but I tell them, look, once every other month or once like that, I mean, you, you want to try something, you want to break the diet, go ahead, break the diet. But be aware that sometimes once you break the diet for one day, that just gets you back. And that ha happened to me. One donut does it. That's why Paul puts it on the top of the list of what not to eat. Yeah, so there's certain things you don't want to eat because it will take you days, if not a week, to recover. Because what happens if you eat donuts and cheetahs and chips, it basically it, it puts the glycogen back in your liver. And then you have to really fast very diligently to break down the glycogen. So you, you really want to try and not cheat. And there's certain things you don't want to cheat on. Donuts, tortillas, buns, muffins. You know what? And you'll actually find that you don't miss them. Once you start eating real food, you know, your appetite will be for real food, not for processed food. Um, and That's true. That's true. And my father, who died at 57 of complications of diabetes, um, I never saw him when he didn't get up in the morning and head straight for the sticky buns. That's what, that's the way he lived. And basically my mother said he killed himself. I mean, that was it. That was the way he did it. Yeah. And Bessie, you know, it, that story is not uncommon. And I think, you know, as, as we said, we're facing a pandemic of obesity, type two diabetes, insulin resistance, they all go hand in hand. And it's all from our lifestyle and misinformation. And you can do something, you know, some people will take a little bit longer but you need to persist. And I think if you do this together as a family or with friends or my brother, Joseph, it, it, it makes it a community. Yeah. And then you want to throw in a bit of yoga. It can always help. And a good walk. That's a good walk oh, out in the sunshine. Oh, it's yeah. great. So ex exercise That's is so great. important. Exercise is really important. Even if it's going for a walk outside. Take the dog. Yeah. With the dog. <laughs> with the dog. Well, Paul, thank you so much for this. Thank you. It's just really great to, to hear that you succeeded and to have all of these guidelines that the rest of us can follow up. And Joe, great to see you and know that you're doing well as well. And, uh, you know, it's just congratulations for this, this wonderful move and this good health for yourself. And let's also, we have to thank the nurses who have been answering all the questions throughout this program. Christina and Scott and Samantha and Pamela, wave to everybody so they can see who you are. Did we have a lot of questions tonight? Are we, were you talking about this and, and COVID and everything else? Uh, we talked about the meaning of life tonight, Betsy. Oh. <laughs> Let us know, oh, let us know oh. what you guys find, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'm not sure I have the answer. My dad, however, said this is the best show that he's seen in a long time. So, um, but we did have a lot of questions. We answered about 140, and there are about 40 still open. There are a lot of questions uh, for Dr. Merrick. So I just left those for him. Okay, so he'll get to them yes, at some more. point. We hope, Christina. <laughs> 
you answering those questions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And speaking of nurses, we are delighted to honor Juan as our nurse of the month. And it's Nicole Landers, who has over 25 years experience in complex uh, criminal case management, critical case management <laughs> of both children and adults, critical case management. Uh, she's director of the COVID care strategy team at Truth for Health Foundation. Nicole is part of a group of medical and legal professionals working together to advocate for the human rights of patients within hospitals and across the community. They rescue patients trapped in restrictive mainstream care systems so that they can receive evidence-based COVID care within their own homes. And Thank you, Nicole, for all that you do for these patients. Now then, if you folks want to learn more about how to treat spike protein-induced diseases, a great opportunity is coming up next month, the middle of next month, at the FLCCC's first ever medical conference in Orlando, Florida, where top doctors look at the people on this slide that you will be hearing. Some of them have been here on our program, but these are people who keep up to date and whose information you can trust. Um, some of them doctors, and there's one amazingly well-educated donor in there. They will be sharing what they have learned about COVID and some of the COVID vaccines that is critically important for public health. The deadline for getting the hotel's discounted rate of uh, for rooms, by the way, I think is coming up this Friday. So don't delay in making your reservations. And we hope to see you there. Now then, another doctor who's going to be at the conference is our own Dr. Bean, who has a new long story short podcast coming up Friday. So you can see it now and then you can see him down in Orlando. His topic this week is on when the RNA won't go away. So you don't want to miss Dr. Bean Friday or at the conference. Uh, you can catch all of his uh, lectures at flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean. And finally, it is my great pleasure to thank all of you who help us every single day with your donations, because every bit of medical education and solid health information that our doctors provide and teach is made possible by you, 100%. So you are the ones who are making the difference. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for whatever amount you have given and are able to give and continuing to give. You, you are helping us do what we can to improve the health of all. And we're going to leave you now. Of course, we'll see you next week here. But we leave you now with the words of a doctor who can tell you better than what I can do what the difference is that you have made for all of his patients. Watch this. My name is Dr. Alan Bain. I've been a member of FLCCC for almost two years now. If it weren't for the FLCCC, I would not have the tools to help all the patients I help. I want to gratefully state that Dr. Merrick and Corey are my mentors and they are my heroes for having started this endeavor. My story is basically hospital driven at first and then it's become driven to keep people out of hospitals and treat them with the protocols. 
I've been fortunate to be forced literally by patients who refuse to go to hospitals because of their fear that they would not come out. And that I can tell you that their fear for remdesivir and being ventilated is very, very real. And I'm joyful that now the FLCCC has a guide to help folks. I'm proud to say that in the year 2021, I was involved in various court cases where three times I was allowed by a judge to go and administer ivermectin. And all these three people are home and happy with their family. My concern now is the upcoming fall. The variants are changing and we need to give hope that people can get better if they fight for what they believe. That would be ivermectin and not getting remdesivir because there's many, many stories that suggest that it might be harmful. Now, the cases I was involved in actually in the hospital had gotten that and we still forged along using the ivermectin. We had to do it per G-tube, nasogastric tube, but it worked. The most important thing I can say about if you get COVID and to keep out of a hospital is obviously the protocol that you have been seeing. But fluids and electrolytes are so powerfully important and something simple like liquid IV or smart water can actually raise, in my experience, a pulse oximetry if the particular variant might hit the lung. So again, I want to be relevant here and prepare people for the fall to keep following the FLCCC and to know there are doctors out there that will fight for you and to keep you out of hospital. I had three to four patients um, needed home oxygen, home IV. Some even needed the IV methylprednisolone in the hospital protocol. So we, I was at least able to give the methylprednisolone through the IV with wonderful nurses. And they are now again, home today and alive and never having had to go to the hospital. My practice basically is built for those things should they come up because I wanna fight for this very, very innocent drug that we call ivermectin, because it is the icing on the cake to the symphony of all the things that FLCCC has been suggesting. You can learn and research, it has 20 actions, not just antiviral, that needs to be stated, because in court, I had a fight for the idea that, that it's not antiviral only, it's also involved in decreasing the stiffening of the lungs should people get that sick. So we have to be all at the ready, we have to change with what the variant does, and I'm a proud foot soldier for the cause of the FLCCC and all the other doctors that are administering these types of protocols. Thank you for the opportunity for me to speak with you.